Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. All right. Hello, Triple uh, R listeners. Our guest for this special online-only edition of Radiotherapy is Professor of Genetics, David Sinclair. Professor Sinclair is in the Department of Genetics and co-director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical School. Professor Sinclair is also the co-founder of several biotech companies. He's the co-founder and co-chief editor of the journal Aging, the inventor of over 30 patents, and at one point Time magazine ranked him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world and top 50 in healthcare. Professor Sinclair is probably best known to radiotherapy listeners as author of the best-selling book Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. There are a number of key attributes to the approach Professor Sinclair takes to considerations of ageing and longevity that set his work distinct from that of many others. As a geneticist, Professor Sinclair contends that if we study ageing as disease, we could not only treat it, but potentially beat it. All of us could live much longer than is currently the case and be healthier as we do so. We'll take a closer look at that idea and the science and medicine behind it and more. Professor Sinclair is preparing for a session as part, as, as part of Think Inc.'s Outside the Box series titled Aging, Your DNA is Not Your Destiny. This is a ticketed online series um, if you're on the east coast of Australia. Um, this will be at uh, midday on Sunday the 28th of June. Um, if that's uh, for our New Zealand listeners, that's 2pm New Zealand time. If you're in North America, 7pm on the Saturday, the 27th of June, that's Pacific time, 7 o'clock, and 10pm Eastern. For more information, visit thinkinc, one word, thinkinc.org.au. We'll put those details in the show notes and up on our socials after the show. In the meantime, we're very fortunate to have Professor Sinclair to ourselves with us via Skype. Professor Sinclair, a very warm welcome to Triple R Radio and Radiotherapy. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here. It's really wonderful to have you with us. We appreciate you doing this quite early where you are and uh, our quick rescheduling as well. Uh, look, uh, public discussion of ageing and longevity is usually simply left implied as a, as a consequence of more general health discussions around sleeping, eating, exercising and mental health and so on. So with that in mind, I think a good starting point would be for you to help us understand how a geneticist looks at this. Um, there must be some distinction to be made uh, for a geneticist compared to, say, some of the other um, medical sciences' approaches to ageing. Is that right? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, geneticists have a unique approach. Uh, we don't go in with, with questions. Uh, we, we just go in and we change genes randomly and we ask what happens. Uh, or we look at human populations and see what what exists out there, and that tells us uh, about the biology. Uh, and, and that's good because it's very easy to come up with uh, ideas about aging, uh, and pretty much everything that's come up over the last few thousand years has been wrong. Uh, so in, in the last 20 years, maybe 25 now really, geneticists like me have been probing model organisms, uh, little organisms such as yeast and worms, uh, even mice, and found that there are genes that we would never have expected uh, to be involved in controlling the pace of aging. And now we can see that those same genes exist in our bodies and seem very much to be in control of our own health and longevity as well. 
So what would the Venn diagram look like with that work and the work that, say, nutrition, nutritionists or, um, or physiologists or so on would do? Where's, is there a crossover at all or is it, is it markedly distinct? Oh, there's a, there's a huge crossover. Um, the more we learn, uh, the more crossover there is. Uh, going back 30 years ago, there wasn't much crossover. It didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, we were still stuck in the uh, let's mop up free radical stage or, uh, or let's just try to slow down telomere loss um, as the major things that could be done to control aging. What we now know is that there are oh, some key parts pathways, key genetic pathways uh, that control how long we live. Uh, that's not disputed. There are three main pathways. Uh, I work on one of the, one of those. Um, but what's intriguing is that we've discovered uh, in my lab and, and others around the world is that these genetic pathways are actually under the control of how we live our lives. So the idea that if we, have, if we do exercise and, and we don't eat or overeat, um, that that's good for us, that actually now matches what we've right. been discovering. These longevity genes respond to what we call uh, biological adversity, or technically we call this hormesis. Right. Um, and even down to the incredibly uh, detailed level of certain molecules that are in the food that we eat that are believed to be good for your heart health and for your brain, such as olive oil, such as resveratrol and red wine, right. we see that these molecules actually trigger the same genetic pathways that we discovered 20, 25 years ago. I'd, I'd like to really come to, you know, some discussion around telomeres and, you know, autophagy and hormesis and, and you know, intermittent fasting and that sort of thing um, shortly. Before we get there, perhaps defining our terms is going to be really useful. What, um, what are we talking about when we're talking about ageing? Is it simply the, the physical and mental deterioration of uh, a life form, in this case humans? Well, yeah, simplistically, yes, it is the loss of function over time that eventually leads to illness and, and death. Uh, but what I argue in my book, uh, and I've been going around the world uh, trying to explain this, is that the difference between a disease and aging is very little, actually. A disease is just like aging. It will cause deterioration, uh, ill health, and in many cases, death. So in those in that respect, aging and disease are no different. The only real difference is that aging is more common. Um, and the, the cutoff in medical textbooks is 50%, which, as you know, is, you know, it's totally human-made. It's arbitrary. There's nothing special about aging that means it's, it needs to be separate from a disease. It's just a very common ailment. And if you think of it that way, it's actually it, – it helps because, first of all, it, it means that we can address it just like other diseases – but also regulation-wise, uh, when it comes to treating aging itself or the process that leads to these diseases that likely will kill us all, um, the medical establishment needs to think of aging as a treatable condition so that uh, medicines that are being developed and medicines that we believe are already available uh, can be prescribed to not just treat diseases once they've occurred, but even to prevent them from occurring in the first place. So is the distinction to be made, uh, uh, and please tell me I'm oversimplifying, but if we do treat it as a disease, then that has all sorts of knock-on consequences for, say, policy making around um, research funding, research focus, um, the status of medicine, the status of supplements. 
um, and and therefore insurance and and so on. Is is that the case? Yeah, it is. It is. So there, there are real practical and legal ramifications of changing this definition. And one of the main ones is reimbursement uh, for drugs, right? If, if there's not a disease to treat, no one's going to pay for it. Unfortunately, um, the World Health Organization has recently declared old age as a medical condition. So at least that's a starting point. There's no country in the world yet that declares aging as a medical condition that's treatable. Mm-hmm. But I think that'll change now that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that, A, we understand what's going on during aging in, in some part, but also that there are medicines that can not just slow the process down, but actually intervene and right. prevent what aging will do to us. And, and let's be honest, the reason we get heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, frailty is because of aging. Um, everything else really matters very little, even smoking compared to smoking. Aging is hundreds of times more powerful at causing cancer. Right. Right. And I guess in I guess in layman's mentality, you know, we've got this notion that we catch disease. So there's an obstacle there, isn't there? Just language wise, you know, rather than understanding that every one of us who are born onto the planet, we are all aging. We've all going to experiencing this process in some form or another. Um, and you don't catch aging. There's a there's a linguistic obst- obstacle as well. True. Uh it's better to think of aging like heart disease. Anyone who lives to 80 or 90 will get heart disease. Uh, and that's right. one aspect of aging. Uh, and we treat heart disease like, it, you know, it's one of the most important things in our society. But we ignore what's really driving heart disease, which is aging itself. Sure. Before we go deeper into the science of it, I'm, I'm also keen to know, um, you know, a sense of your scientific motivation, your scientific aspiration for this kind of work. Is it uh, a medical science equivalent of Hillary climbing Everest and doing it just because it's there, just because it's a challenge? Or is there some other application of the science that you're really aspiring to see occur? Well, I'm not doing it for myself. That's a, sometimes people have that misconception that I'm worried about dying. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm more driven by, uh, by curiosity and wanting to leave an impact on the planet. Um, yeah. I want to leave this place better than I found it. My parents, my grandparents have taught me that. Uh, and when I looked at medicine and I was thinking about going to be uh, an MD, not a PhD, um, I thought actually I could have a bigger impact by addressing what I thought was the biggest unsolved problem in medicine, which is what I work on, aging itself. And to me, it, it was just strange that nobody 30 years ago was really taking this subject seriously. Yeah, so it is It is. When you say something like 30 years, I mean, it probably is going to come to the surprise to a lot of our listeners that, you know, that's relatively recent times, isn't it? What, what's the, where's the shift occurring or that means that you can now set up a research centre dedicated to this where perhaps 30 years ago um, you could look around and not see any such centre? Mm. Well, the quality of science has gone up orders of magnitude 30 years ago. Aging research was considered the backwater of biology. Right. It was far more, it was sexier to study cell cycle and stem cells and these kind of things. But aging research was revolutionized in the 1990s, early 1990s, with these genetic studies showing that single gene changes can greatly extend the lifespan of little animals. And that was a rel- revelation because we thought that aging was so complicated, it would be extremely difficult to make any difference to it. Um, we knew that calorie restriction 
uh, was able to do it, but we really had no idea what was going on inside the body. Right. It wasn't just slowing down metabolism. If anything, calorie restriction speeds it up. But this genetic approach and finding that there are these key, what we call longevity genes, was the first major step. And we, we've had a lot of breakthroughs since, such as linking it to the environment, to diet, uh, even now to, to having a list of causes of aging. There are about eight of those. We call them hallmarks. And more recently, which I talk about in my book, and I'll talk about on June 28th, yep. is I think that we've found the main upstream driver of what all these problems are, uh, are caused by. Uh, and that's a loss of information in the body that uh, we, we have in a pristine form when we're very little, very young, but we lose that over time. Right. So we've touched on one of your key concepts, which is understanding aging as disease. The other one, uh, and it's, it's, it's the title of your uh, time uh, with the event coming up, it's that DNA is not your destiny. Can you just talk us through what uh, you're getting at there by, by presenting that? The concept. Yeah, the first good news is that uh, only about 25% is uh, your DNA uh, in terms of your health and your longevity. That's surprisingly little, right? We, we tend to think that we can't do much about our how long we're going to live. But the good news is that how we live our lives, what we eat, how we exercise, the kind of things we eat, uh, have a massive impact. And we know this from studying, well, other, others know this, and I've read their work, that that twins that live different lifestyles have very different longevity and health in their old age. Right. But what I, I, I think is more important than that actually is that uh, I believe we've, we've now discovered that the loss of our DNA, uh, you, you know, recall mutations are occurring in our body and so we're losing a bit of genetic information. But the breakthrough has been that that's not the main cause of aging. What uh, I think drives aging is another type of information in the body, not so-called genetic information, but we call it epigenetic information. And epigenetic information is, is just a, a catch-all term for the processes and the machinery in cells that reads the DNA right. at the right time and the right place in the right cell. And so if, if you think about what this means, it, the analogy would be that, that our DNA is like uh, the music on a compact disc. Is this the um, epigenetic symphony that I've heard about? Yeah, yeah. So that tell that's us what's the, the epigenetic symphony. Well, well. So the DNA is uh, is like a piano. Uh, it's got the notes, uh, but it doesn't play by itself. You need a pianist, um, and in the same way, a CD doesn't play itself. You need a reader. Uh, but what I think is going wrong during aging is that the the music isn't being played correctly. You get the wrong songs and the wrong notes at the at the wrong time. Uh, which eventually is a cacophony. No one wants to listen to it. The same with cells. Uh, our genes do not get read correctly as we get older, and cells lose their identity. They lose their function, and they, they misbehave. They can become cancerous, or they just mal malfunction. And we have some very good evidence this, that this is true. The first is that we can drive aging forward by messing up this epigenome and making cells misread their DNA. And the second is that we're hoping to publish soon that we can reverse this process and actually reestablish the symphony. So that would be the equivalent of bringing in a new concert pianist or right. polishing a scratch CD. Yep. Yep. Um, I, I think perhaps we should just do a very, very quick uh, rewind. The epigenome is? Well, it, it's a complex uh, system in the cell that says 
I'll, I'm going to read this gene correctly now, uh, and I'm going to stay a nerve cell, uh, and I'm not going to turn into a skin cell tomorrow. Right, because remember, that's... every cell has the same genome, a few variations on this, but essentially all the cells are the same genetically, but it's the epigenome that gives us different cells and, and allows us to be a fully functional uh, organism of 27 billion different cells. Um, physically, what the epigenome is, it's um, these are proteins uh, mostly that bundle up the, the genome, the DNA molecule. And depending on how it's bundled, whether it's tightly bundled, which silences genes, or it's opened up in loops, which is open uh, chromatin, as we call it, these genes are now switched on. And it's this bundling and looping that controls how a cell functions and what type of cell it remains for many decades. You touched on um, uh, uh, hormesis uh, earlier on, and my my uh, understanding is that's kind of along the lines of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, and it feeds into this idea that if we um, deprive or stress our our, our body, um, our cells, that that can actually return some benefit to ourselves. And there's a number of different ways that we can cause that stress. Can you talk us through uh, hormesis, please? Yeah, so all organisms respond favorably if you make them uh, believe that they're, they're going to die. Um, you know, too much stress, too much adversity. And by stress, I don't mean psychological stress. Sure. I mean biological uh, too much is a problem, you know, step on a snail, it's not going to live longer. But there's a certain amount of stress that you can give a cell, make it fear for its survival, that actually turns on its defenses to a level that's beneficial more than it, it hurts the cell. And the same is true for organisms, whether it be yeast or worms, flies, or even humans. And there are various ways to trick the body into thinking that it might die or have a lot of adversity running out of food, running out of amino acids, uh, having to run a lot away from a, say, a saber-toothed tiger. These are things that the body has evolved to realize that this is not good uh, and that it, it's going to now put more energy into defense rather than just uh, existence. Right. A lot of uh, our listeners will have come across um, intermittent fasting spoken of in the public domain quite a lot, and, and I'm alert to the fact that you, you've you uh, referred to uh, Volta Longo's work in the past and and how it, there's there's an understanding that fasting of some sort, uh, of some duration, creates this uh, autophagy, and autophagy takes a look at getting rid of the weakest or the baddest, uh, for want of a better phrase, cells. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Autophagy is one of the, the problems during aging. We, we have less autophagy. Um, and fasting revs that up for sure. It also revs up many other cell defenses, such as DNA repair. Uh, but yeah, if you fast for a few days, you'll you'll get deep cleansing of your protein uh, stores. There's this super type of autophagy called chaperone-mediated autophagy, which takes a while to kick in. Um, I've never been able to go for more than a day without eating, actually. <laughs> but some people do it and... Uh, they think that it's extremely beneficial. But even just being hungry for a number of hours each day uh, seems to have remarkable health benefits as well. 
Does it matter? Like, it, does it matter what type of diet you're fasting from? Um, is there any implication? Say, if you are, you know, and and certainly just the public again, there there are cross ideas of uh, high carb diets. There are cross high fat diets. There are cross, you know, obviously plant based and so on. Um, when you're, you know, normally quote unquote normally on that kind of diet in your lifestyle, does does fasting have any different impact at that? Yeah, it, it's not really known for people yet. There's not enough studies. Hmm. But there's been a, an excellent study in mice uh, by uh, my friend and colleague, Rafael de Cabo, down at the NIH in Bethesda, US. And what he found was really surprising. Uh, I don't think anybody expected it. He had tens of thousands of mice on different diets. And he was trying to figure out why calorie restriction worked in some monkey colonies, but not others. And he gave different ratios of carbs and proteins and fats, uh, what he found was that the diets didn't make as much difference as when he gave the food to the mice. And those that were hungry during the day, no matter what the diet was, uh, were the ones that were healthiest and lived longest. So I think that's probably going to be true for people is that intermittent fasting is more important than what you eat. Mm. You know, just, you know, you can't, you can't always eat fast food and expect to live longer, (laughs) but you know, within reason, if you're having a fairly healthy diet, um, the amount of fat you have is, is less important than the fasting. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You've um, referred to a lot of the testing uh, at this stage being done with mice. Where are we on a timeline towards uh, human testing, especially in relation to anything that we might call medicine or supplements? Yeah, well, there have been clinical trials for at least 15 years now, uh, and some have been successful, actually. Um, We don't have a, a drug that was developed for aging yet on the market. What we have are a couple of things. We have drugs in development by oh, at least oh, 20 different companies. So there's a lot of activity that most people are not aware of. Um, I have a few companies that, that one of which is in clinical trials, no, two are in clinical trials and some others that are underway shortly, hopefully in a year or two. Uh, but the other interesting thing is that there are drugs that were developed for diseases of aging um, as well as um, transplantation that show real signs of, of having anti-aging properties. Uh, the two molecules are metformin and rapamycin. Yes, um, I've, 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 in preparation for our conversation, I was bumping into metamorphin quite a bit. What, what's going on with it? What is it and, and how is it understood to operate? And how would people engage with it as, as part of their diet or lifestyle? Well, those three longevity pathways or genetic pathways that I mentioned, one of them is uh, modulated by metformin. It's called AMPK. And this pathway exists mainly to sense how much energy the cell has and to adapt to low energy conditions. It'll be turned on by exercise. It'll be turned on by fasting. It's also activated by metformin, which is a drug that is prescribed typically for type 2 diabetes or age-associated diabetes or high blood sugar. Um, and it's it's a relatively safe molecule. It's used by millions of people around the world. Typically, is the first drug you'll get if you have high blood sugar. 
But what's been found by studying over 10,000 people who developed type 2 diabetes and took metformin is that they were also seemingly protected against other diseases of aging, such as cancer, Alzheimer's, and frailty. And many of us believe, myself included, that that data is, uh, well, never proof, but it's, it's really convincing evidence that this drug can not just treat uh, one disease, but many, which is really the definition of a longevity molecule. And the other one that I was coming across a lot, and you've spoken a great deal about, is resveratrol. Um, could you just talk to that and how that fits into uh, to this story? Uh, yeah, so the the other group of genes um, in this triad are called sirtuins, and I've been working on those since they were really first discovered uh, when I was a kid uh, at MIT to be linked to longevity. There are seven of those genes. Uh, they make enzymes that control cell defenses, they do a variety of things. They control fertility, DNA repair. Pretty much every cell in the body uh, is defended by them. Um, they respond to exercise. They also respond to fasting. So these are, think of these as defenders of, of the body during adversity mm. or perceived adversity. Resveratrol, we discovered um, in a group of about 21 molecules back in 2003 uh, with an ability to activate the SIRT1, uh, SIRT2 and 1 enzyme. And uh, we showed in yeast and then worms and then flies and then mice um, that resveratrol, by activating SIRT1, was able to extend health and lifespan. Uh, uh, we are still working on this. We, we've seen now that we can, we've, we've really proven that resveratrol acts on SIRT1 in a mouse and extends its lifespan, particularly on a high-fat diet. Resveratrol is not a great drug. Um, I don't think it will ever be a drug. But it's a good proof of concept molecule and it's very safe and it's available as a supplement. And, you know, I've said publicly many times over the years that I, I take it. Um, I don't think there's a downside to taking it. Hmm. Uh, but there's potential upside. Heart disease seems to be uh, slowed down in humans. There's some uh, evidence that uh, it'll protect against a high-fat diet as well in people. Um, it's not perfect. The molecule isn't highly soluble so you have to take it with some food i think for it to actually do any good um and not all clinical trials have therefore shown benefits but there have been probably 20 clinical trials roughly and uh i don't know maybe a third to a half of them have shown some health benefits in people right um where time is uh, flying, um, uh, Professor Sinclair, I, I, you said right at the top that one of your motivations and aspirations was to leave the world a, a bit better place. So although it's not specifically your scientific area, no doubt as you're doing your research um, and setting your research agenda for that matter, um, you're cognizant of a lot of implications for a lot more people living a lot longer, you know. So if all of a sudden there are a lot of people living into their early hundreds or maybe even a bit longer, there's, there's a lot of social and political implications there. You know, it means we're going to perhaps uh, have issues with what does retirement, redefining retirement, uh, for example, and so on. What, uh, what is most front of mind in that respect for, for you? Well, you're right that there, there will be a number of changes. Um, but but similar, similarly, in the 20th century, when we went from, you know, a lot of people were not living past 60 to well beyond 80. We adapted, and I don't think anyone would go back to, you know, the 1910s again. So the same thing's going to happen in this century. We're going to, uh, I predict, 
expect to live to 90 or 100. Um, many of us will be healthy in, in our old age, still hanging out with the grandkids, great grandkids. But socially and uh, politically and economically, there will be changes. Uh, I outline in my book, we can talk about this um, on the 28th of June as well, that um, most of these things that will happen are predicted to be beneficial to the planet. For instance, uh, the cost savings of healthcare, the older you live and the healthier you are, of course, that's a great saving for, uh, for Australia in particular, as we talk about that. Um, we've calculated that the amount of GDP that would go up um, is quite substantial. Uh, over 10 years, it would be a 4% increase in GDP alone. Uh, not to mention the social effects. You know, Having a, a parent or grandparent that's in a nursing home or debilitated for 10 years is 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 tough emotionally, it's expensive, um, it's draining on families. And if we can avoid that and have productive members of our families, productive members of society, and then have people uh, pass away relatively quickly, which is what the goal is and seems right. to be achievable, then that's all a good thing. Now, what are the negatives? Well, we we hope that there'll be a, there'll be employment for everybody. You know, today, after having uh, the pandemic, that's always on people's minds. But what we've seen is that there's never a shortage for human uh, creativity, um, and we we don't just want to be around robots. We want to be around sure. human beings. Yeah. And not all work is paid. You know, helping the family, looking after the kids, doing nonprofit work, um, is all good stuff that that people uh, who are at that age can can help out with. So I, I really look forward to a world where we don't have to worry about getting cancer in our 70s and 80s and being frail in our 80s and 90s. Listening to you speak to that, it, it seems to me the rub is not necessarily the number, but the relative health up, you know, of our lives up to that number. So if we are living to 125, 130 or whatever, so long as we're fit and healthy, we've got some agency, um, then in concept... Um, that's a good life. It would be redundant in a sense if we could biologically get to that kind of number, but maybe suffer a whole lot of mental uh, health issues related to grief, you know, um, if we've gone through three or four different sets of uh, partners or, or what have you. Um, uh, obviously, identity with what it means to be old in our society. We we're already struggling um, with relationships between old and young people and, and so on. So it's it's the quality of life as much as the quantity that's still front of mind? Yeah. I mean, there's no point living if you're not healthy. So our research has been focused on improving the health of, of all organs in the body, including the brain, right? The brain is probably the, the most important part of the body to keep healthy yeah. and functioning well. And the good news is that, that, that our studies show that the brain isn't left behind if you take this approach, which is not true for many medicines that are used today. Sure, sure. With the very uh, short amount of time we've got left uh, with you, I, I, I can't keep this a COVID-free zone, if you don't mind. W where has uh, attention to ageing studies uh, from a geneticist's point of view and COVID intersected? Oh, yeah, well, so w when COVID started, uh, I was in high demand. People wanted facts from scientists and I... I avoided linking my research to COVID because it looked self-serving and probably was <laughs> was a, a, a person with a hammer looking for a nail. Right. But what actually, sorry, I can't do, what happened actually was that other people saw my research uh, and the field research and, and started doing clinical trials. And there have actually been numerous case studies of patients doing better when you activate the sirtuins. And we haven't talked about 
a molecule called NAD, but ah, Switzerland's yes. need NAD. And by boosting the levels of NAD back up to youthful levels, because we lose NAD as we get older, um, we, we, in mice at least, we see dramatic health improvements. And we've been doing clinical trials for the last two years on people, so we know it's a very safe approach. But some people have tried this on COVID patients and found, at least in small numbers of people, that there's a dramatic improvement in those severe cases um, to the effect of even you know, a day or two later, people you know, now getting out of bed. So we're running formalized placebo-controlled trials right now with an NAD-boosting molecule that uh, we've already had in people for two years. And the hope is that people's bodies will become younger and more able to fight COVID-19, uh, which we know is possible. Uh, at least we know if you're young, you don't tend to die from this disease. And it's highlighted the fact that aging is important um, and we do need to figure out ways to make old people as resilient as young people. Sure, sure. Um, I've, you're, every, t every little bit of uh, writing I read about uh, you, Professor Sinclair, describes you in one way or another as a bit of a workaholic, somebody who's uh, highly productive, um, you know, very very focused on your work and so on. That seems intuitively as a contradiction to some, you know, to good long life that we need to kind of pace ourselves a bit. Um, how much of yourself do you see in your work, and do you see contradiction in that kind of lifestyle for yourself, given the given what you're paying attention to? Uh, yes, actually, the the pandemic has been very helpful to make me realize that I don't need to be always on. Uh, what I suffer from is is this opportunity and I think an obligation to make the most of the position that I'm in right. and the time that I have. But it's come at, at a cost. Uh, my family's paid a price, um, but I'm trying to be a better dad, a better family guy now that uh, I now have a chance to uh, to turn things around. We'll um, we'll uh, bring this to a close. It really has been um, wonderful speaking with you. There's just one last question on my mind. Is it possible that the p first person to live to 150 is walking amongst us at the moment? Uh, well, anything's possible. My colleagues really hate it when I say that because there's no proof of this, right? And it's, it's an, they think it's an exaggeration. Uh, but I will say that we, we seem to have turned a corner. We're, we're This work that we're about to publish shows that we can reset the biological clock, get the epigenome to go back to the way it was. And when we do that, again, this is mice, of course, but we can even restore the eyesight of blind mice in, mm. in old age. Mm. Um, and their eyes are not just behaving young, they're literally young again. So with that kind of technology, if it takes hold and there's a lot of investment, uh, I don't see why it wouldn't be possible to reset the body, uh, not just once, but multiple times, getting us Right. way beyond what we can't, we can imagine. Huh. We shall see. Um, we've been talking with Professor Sinclair. Um, uh, I'm talking all things ageing and longevity. Professor Sinclair is preparing for a session titled Ageing, Your DNA is Not Your Destiny as part of Think Inc.'s Outside the Box series, a ticketed online series. If you're on the east coast of Australia, you can catch uh, Professor Sinclair on Sunday the 28th of June, 12pm, that's noon um, Australian Eastern Time or 2pm New Zealand Time, um, or equivalency, that's on the Saturday the 27th of June uh, Pacific Time at 7 o'clock in North America or at 10 o'clock Eastern Time, North America. Professor Sinclair, it's been a delight um, talking with you and uh, hearing a lot more about your work. I'm sure 
sure our uh, our listeners will be very interested in the event coming up and um, and hearing a lot more of your work in uh, years to come. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.